tuned in to Word of Mom Radio here on the Word of Mom Media Network. Welcome to the Village Vision Podcast, where community collaboration and care converge. I'm Dr. Crystal Morrison, and I'm honored to be your host on this incredible journey. As a firm believer in the power of a united village, I'm thrilled to bring you inspiring stories, research, and projects that break down barriers in child and family care. Through heartfelt conversations with experts, advocates, and those with lived experiences, we'll showcase the transformative impact of collective support. So join me on the Village Vision podcast as we explore the remarkable collaborations that lead to better outcomes, foster a sense of community, and inspire action to improve care for ourselves and everyone around us. On today's episode, I'm here with my friend, Dr. Richard Schuster. He's the clinical psychologist, TEDx speaker, and CEO of Your Success Insights. He's also a renowned media expert and the host of the Daily Helping podcast, which is regularly downloaded in over 150 countries. His mission is to help people become the best versions of themselves and make the world a better place. Welcome, Dr. Schuster. Thanks so much, Dr. Crystal. It is awesome to be here today. Let's have some fun and let's help some people. All right. Sounds good. You know, that's kind of what we do on the daily, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I figured I was in the right place. Yes, you are. So, of course, I really want to talk more about the work that you're doing today, but I know that everybody we talk to on this podcast has a really deep personal connection, personal why behind the work that they're doing today. And you are certainly no different from that. And I want to talk about the work that you're doing today. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about your personal story and what led you really to be doing the work that you're doing today. It's kind of a a two-part story, Dr. Crystal. The original, I would say, you know, Richard Schuster 1.0 would not have been a good candidate for your podcast because I was a jerk. Uh, There's just no other way to put it. When I was young, I bid on a government contract with the Department of Defense, not not missiles or weapons, anything like that. It was to create a VPN uh, before there were really VPNs for the medical records of the Army. And I had no business winning this contract, but I did. And all of a sudden, this very quickly went to my head. I was going to be the next Tony Stark. I was going to have a jet with my face on the wing and buy a, an island and all of these things that you could do. And I became really obsessed with accumulating stuff for the sake of having stuff and saying that I have stuff, right? Building this company, everything's going fine. And then one day, just an ordinary Saturday or so, I thought I made a left-hand turn and a 17-year-old ran a red light and slammed into me and that car accident broke my spine and nearly killed me. And so that was the catalyst. I didn't have this moment where I was pleading for God, oh, please let me live. And I promise if you do, I'm going to give presents to orphan boys or girls the next. It wasn't like that. I I was dead. I knew that I was not going to survive this impact. I knew that my parents were going to get a call that I had been senselessly killed. And now that I'm a psychologist, I understand the phenomenon. There's a, there's what happens is something called tachypsychia. And tachypsychia is when the brain slows down our perception or, of our environment. So we can evaluate the situation and get out of there. So think Neo in the Matrix, right? 
where he's dodging those bullets in slow motion, that's what this was like for me. I could see my windshield shattering in slow motion, little bits of glass reflecting the sunlight, and I could yeah. see my center console crushing like it was a can of Coke into my ribs. All in slow motion, I had this dialogue with myself about how much it sucked that I'm going to die, that the watch isn't coming with me, my car which was becoming wrapped around my body, isn't coming with me, that I have nothing positive to show for my life. And so spoiler alert, I survived. (laughs) But it did break my spine and gave me an opportunity to recover. And it was a lengthy recovery. And so I'd love to say this is the point of the story where I like balled my fist up at the sky and said, from now on, I'm going to help people. It was a journey, like everything is, right? And so I rehabilitated. I went back to work. But nothing was ever the same for me. And the longer I forced myself to stay in that tech job, the more miserable I became until I finally kind of had had enough. And I walked away from this company that I told everybody in the world was going to be the next Microsoft. And that was rock bottom. I wasn't suicidal, but I was for sure clinically depressed. I was pretty hopeless. Mm -hmm. And I was there for a while, Mm -hmm. months, uh, just wallowing in this what if why did I do this? All these kind of regrets. And what was kind of the the tip of the spear that moved me into the next thing was I had to go grocery shopping. If there was Instacart back then, I don't know where I'd be today. But I, back then, you had to go to the grocery store. And I, yeah. went to the, I went and I over, I just happened to be, you know, in an aisle where I heard these two moms talking about their teenage daughters on social media and how yeah. upset they were about the pictures they were posting and concerns. And I don't generally butt in on people's conversations at the grocery store, but in this instance, I did. I said, hey, you know, I have a background in technology, and these are the things you need to do to keep your kids safe online. And I was trying to be helpful, but what I really did was terrify these two ladies who um, now said, oh, my God, you're freaking out. You have to come speak at our PTA. And I did. And that was the first time, because there was no agenda, right? I was just trying to help people, that I had this little spark inside of me to where I said, oh, well, it feels really good to do things for other people. And in the interest of time, I'll fast forward. But what that led me to was going back to school, which terrified me. And I got a master's in social work. And then thirsty for more knowledge and more student loans, I went on to get my doctorate in clinical psychology, which is what I'm kind of known for now. But it really began with that accident, kind of shifted my focus from just hunting money towards finding opportunities to make a difference in the lives of others. Yeah, but, you know, you did. You went back to school and got your PhD in psychology, of course, and you were involved in lots and lots of things. And there's Dr. Richard 2.0 also <laughs> that that also prompted the type of work that you're doing today. So talk to us a little bit about that, but then talk about the different projects that you're working on right now that, sure. and really how they thread together your overall <clears throat> mission of helping people. I appreciate that question. So, yeah, so I, I graduated with my doctoral degree. I set out to build a practice and have the impact and saw myself having fun and helping people. And and I achieved a a pretty high degree of success quickly in that space. And yet something was still missing for me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whenever you have these points of inflection where you need to make a change in your life, you just do the thing that most people do is you go on Amazon and see what you're called to, to buy in that moment. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I love that. 
I bought a microphone. I bought a microphone and, and these headphones that I'm wearing, and I decided to start a podcast. And uh-huh. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even have a name to the show. I didn't have a website. I just had my personal email address. And I would get up every day at 4.35 in the morning, and I just start emailing famous people. Real emails, not canned emails, they yeah. these custom emails. And every day I did this. And 99% of the time they didn't respond. Sometimes they'd respond and tell me no. But eventually yeah. a few people started saying yes. And the yeses became more plentiful. And then I got really lucky when NBC got a hold of me pretty early on in my career. And that was the moment where it literally went overnight from – my friends and family listening to me to humor me to people were pulling the show everywhere on earth. And when I realized that I had this platform, I then realized that I had a responsibility to leverage this platform and help as many people as I could in different ways. So when I then kind of went to my drawing board and said, well, what do I, what do I know a lot of that? I said, okay, well, I know a lot about psychology And what else makes me kind of unique in terms of my background? Well, I know a lot about technology. And so I said, okay, great. And so I thought about an area that makes me kind of upset and I don't like it as an industry. And I thought about the assessment industry. It's a remarkably pejorative industry that's largely controlled by two or three billion dollar players. It always has been. That industry is is rigged in a certain way that they have to find enough things wrong with people so that some insurance company will pay for something. And they often, not always, but they often don't tell you anything positive about you. They just rubber stamp on you how much you suck. And I said, okay, cool. I'm going to be the Michael Dell of the assessment industry. And I'm going to bypass clinicians by creating algorithms that are self-scoring and self-interpreting. And what that did was now somebody can utilize one of our assessments and they don't need to pay a doctor thousands of dollars or wait to see if their insurance fits it, right? So uh, I wanted everything to be accessible. I wanted everything to be affordable that we built. And I wanted things to highlight areas of growth in addition to things that make people rock, right? And so we started out actually in the space of trauma. We have a really unique system for veterans, post-deployment veterans who experience trauma. Uh, We have then expanded our I don't want to call it our trauma product line. That's horrible to say. But our trauma offerings, we have tools for first responders. So think your doctors, your nurses, your paramedics who have very different trauma exposure presentations than would say somebody who has served in law enforcement or in military combat. Uh, We then built a system for those involved in addiction and recovery because nobody ever thought it was important until us to consider the impact of racial discrimination on addiction. And we coded an algorithm that can help people stay sober as well as be aware of their own personal liabilities in terms of relapse risk, right? We moved into tools involving peak performance in the corporate space, helping student athletes become the best possible student athlete on and off the field. Life was amazing. It was COVID. I was more successful than I had ever been. Uh, I did my first TED talk. Everything yeah. was just cruising along. Uh, and, and I will give you one minor correction. I, I think Dr. Richard Schuster 2.0 was me after the car accident. I really think that that was the, the shift. But what happened next made 3.0. And that was I, I suffered a stroke 
in June of 2020, and I almost died. And so your listeners may or may not be familiar with me, but those that kind of listen to my show and know me know that like I am meticulous about eating healthy and exercising and having a gratitude practice and you know, doing all the things you're supposed to do every day to not have a stroke. It's not like I was doing lines of cocaine and I was 700 pounds. Like it shouldn't have happened to me. And it happened during peak COVID to where I basically had to be dropped off at the hospital by my wife. She basically rolled up at the entrance and I kind of stagger up to this tent where there was a woman in a hazmat suit telling me, why do you need to be admitted to this hospital today? Mm -hmm. Not how can we help you, but why should we let you in? And I said, I've had a stroke. And she said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, these symptoms are X, Y, and Z. And they take me back and they do their evaluation of me. And the ER doc, who was frenzied, you know, back, this was, this was still like when we didn't know much about this virus. So we yeah, were absolutely. still Lysoling our groceries and our kids. And yeah. Um, yeah, the doctor says to me, the ER doctor, they gave me a CT scan, which didn't show anything. And he says, well, I, I don't believe you've had a stroke. I'm discharging you. And um, thankfully, I know what I know because it saved my life. I looked at him in the eye. I said, listen to me very carefully. I said, I trained at the Cleveland Clinic. I've seen more stroke than you or anybody in this hospital. And I said, and you know that an ischemic stroke might not show up on a CT scan like an embolic stroke would. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to give me an MRI right now so we can see focally where the insult in my brain was. And you're going to need blood thinners to save my life because I'll die without them probably. And I just stared him in the eye. And uh, he rolled his eyes at me, but he acquiesced. And I got my blood thinners and I got my MRI. And so there's a part of your brain, Dr. Crystal, called the basal ganglia. It's largely involved in speech and motor movement. If you've seen somebody with advanced Parkinson's disease, that's where the insult usually is to the brain. I missed it by less than a millimeter. I can't even show you with my fingers how small that gap was and how close I came. So that's two close calls, right? And when I came out of that, it was one of these scenarios where how could this have happened? And so when somebody who's relatively young, my kids tell me I'm super old, but medically speaking, I'm I'm relatively young, medically speaking, when somebody with no risk factors whatsoever has a stroke, then what starts happening is the medical team goes into risk management mode because nobody wants to get sued for missing that small obscure thing. So I was sent to every specialist you can imagine, hematology, rheumatology, oncology, endocrinology, every ology. I got them all covered, right? I got to hit all the ologies. So when I'm sitting with my neurologist who's reviewing everything and everything's negative, says to me, Dr. Richard, all your results are negative. So the only thing that I can really think about is, you know, significant stress, which is a risk factor for heart attack and things like that. So he said to me, how many hours do you work each week? Mm-hmm. I laughed in his face. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't work at all. I don't work at all. He I said, love what? my job. That's what I said. Exactly. He said, what do you, I don't get it. He said, you're, you're a young guy. Did you win the lottery? Do you have a rich uncle? What do you mean? He says, and I told him just what you said. I said, no, no, I, I don't really consider what I do work because I love what I do. And he got really mad. And he furrowed his brow and he said to me, Richard, how many hours a week do you love what you do? And thought about it in that context. I said about 80 to 100. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to tell you. And he knew about my, my back. And, you know, so this is now twice now I've had a pretty close call, right? Okay. And he said, 
the odds of you coming out of this totally intact are really low. And if you don't make significant changes to your lifestyle, the next one, probably you won't be so lucky. And so my wife then begins to cry because she's there and she puts her head in her hands and says, no, he'll never stop working, doctor. He's an animal. I just, in that instant, it's like, it's like I was hit by a lightning bolt. I said, okay. I put up my hand. I said, look, 25 hours a week for the rest of my life. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And she like wipes the tears and really, you mean it? And I said, yeah. And so that really, I wasn't trying to launch like a new platform or, you know, like I was very happy with where I was, but I realized that, you know, if this could happen to me and I thought my life was pretty okay compared to a lot of people's very blessed, uh, it could happen to anybody people who generally have a lot more stress than I do. And so um, I've created this entire platform on work-life balance, part based on neuroscience, part based on trial and error, where I created systems uh, to allow myself to be as productive as I used to be, mm-hmm. working far fewer hours. And um, we built the world's first uh, empirically validated assessment on work-life balance. And uh, I was very proud to bring that to market because people need help. And, you know, the, the entrepreneurial lie is, is very seductive, right? It's always, oh, you know, if I spend, let me just bang out this next presentation or do this thing because I'm doing it to make the world a better place. I'm doing this to provide financial freedom to our families. There's all these romantic, it's not like we're building our businesses to, you know, hurt people. Quite the contrary. So it's very seductive, these lies, but when you see them for what they are, and you strip away the you know, romanticism from them, you're on a slippery slope. And so I'm very grateful that people tell me how unlucky I am, right? If, oh, God, you broke your back and y'all had a stroke. I'm very lucky because the car accident gave me purpose and meaning to live my life. And the stroke enabled me to bring balance to it. And now because of it, and it's not like I had a bad marriage. I have a very strong marriage and I had a good relationship with my children, Mm -hmm. but both are improved because I'm no longer working a zillion hours a week. So I guess that brings us to today, right? Yeah. I remember when we talked several times before and you were telling me about that story with the stroke and, you know, but I love my work and, I am so guilty of the same, and we've talked about this before. I'm at a point in my life where I really feel like the time I'm spending on a day-to-day basis, I'm, I'm having impact. I'm doing things that I enjoy. I, I'm having an impact on not only other people, but also myself and how I see myself in the world, right? But I will think nothing about working all evening every evening right or or getting up really early and working or working all weekend and and I play these mental games with myself like oh if I just get this done I'll have this time to do these other things or if I just get this done and you know as well as I do that once you get that done there's always something else yep (laughs) there's always something else um, and especially I work from home. So do you. I, I struggle with having 
boundary conditions on my time because my home is my office, vice versa. And, and some people struggle to work from home because they find it hard to stay on task. I struggle to work from home because work never goes away. <laughs> so, um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the work by life balance piece and the types of things they you're doing today, both in your work, but also in your daily schedule and your structure and the tools that you're using that are really helping you to have balance, but also to, for you to share that balance and that uh, with other people. Many of the people that I speak to are entrepreneurial in nature, but a lot of these apply to anybody. So whether you yeah. work for yourself, you've got a great job that you love, um, this makes sense uh, to talk about. And a lot of companies now, as we're you know, moving further away from the pandemic, but still sitting on this research that you don't necessarily need to be in an office. So we're, we're seeing less of gun to your head, come into the office or you're fired, and more of a hybrid approach to work. That seems to be where we are going now, you know, if there's another pandemic, all bets are off, right? But for now, it's it's a pretty good mix. And so what I would say in, directly to your comments, because the data pre-pandemic was really clear on this, is that work-from-home employees, on average, work more hours, not less, more hours than those that drive into an office because there's a boundary, right? Generally, you get there at 8, you do your thing, take a lunch, but 4 or 5 o'clock, you're out the door. And so boundaries are critical in this, and they can be physical boundaries. So for me, I have a space in my house that is just work. That's it. And I've even gone crazier than that. I have two monitors that sit side by side, uh-huh. and this monitor I'm talking to you in is like that Dr. Richard Schuster uh computer where everything that's in this world is right here on my right side of the screen. I slide my chair to the left and everything's with my other stuff. And that's very intentional to have these kind of divisions. When I shut this door to my office, that's it. My email is not on my phone. You cannot email me work email. So when I'm not sitting in front of my office, and a lot of people, oh, my God, that's so crazy. If there is something that's world-changing and I need to know because the universe will stop if somebody doesn't get a hold of me, people know how to get a hold of me, right? People have my phone number. I heard a really great anecdote from he was a resident at the time when I I trained at the Emory Emory School of Medicine here in Atlanta uh, many years ago. We were, you know, me and my graduate student buddies were kind of freaking out. We had a, uh, I think it was like a neurophysiology examination. It was a midterm with a a notorious professor who, you know, failed people left and right. And everybody was freaking out. And we had this and we had this project and, you know, all these things. And he just looked at us and he said, you know what, guys? He said, the work always gets done. There is always enough time in the day to get everything you need done. And so that stuck with me. And I kind of live by that as a mantra because you will always find the opportunities to get the critical stuff done uh, and then be able to shut your laptop and say, okay, now I get to be a mom. Now I get to be a dad, right? 
And so that's very important. So it's boundaries, physical boundaries. Have a space in your house mm-hmm. that's just work. Even if it's, a, if it's a little coffee table that you set up with a laptop in some corner, be very clear that that's it. That's all that is, is that's your workspace. And then be very clear about your hours uh, that you're going to work. If you work for yourself, well, set those hours and say, I'm only going to work between the hours of, you know, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., whatever, whatever hours make sense for you. Now, there's always exceptions, right? Like if somebody wanted to meet with you at 6 o'clock and they wanted to give you $300 million in grant money, you're going to have that meeting at 6 o'clock, right? 6 o'clock's okay. <laughs> you could make 6 work. But 99% out of the time, there is no meeting that's going to radically change your life. So that's kind of the question I ask myself. Am I going to work outside of my set hours? Yeah. Is it going to change my life, my family's life, or my mission of impact at a scaled way that I couldn't possibly do normally? If the if the answers to those are no, then it waits for the next day, period. Sure. And so that's one of the things that I that I think is important. So when and, and if you don't know what your hours are, if you if you work for somebody else, have a candid conversation with your boss mm-hmm. and say, listen, what what are the hours you expect me to be available? Because what was happening during the pandemic is people were feeling pressured to respond to an email at 10 o'clock at night, right? They're in bed, they get this email, oh my God, I've got to log on to my... No, have that conversation because no reasonable employer is going to say, no, we expect you to respond to emails 24 hours a day. It's not going to happen. But you need... So have clarity on your hours. Have a space where you work. And then the next thing, and this is more if you're an entrepreneur than if you work for somebody else, is have really firm expectations about who you want to put on your schedule. This has been one of the biggest things for me because it used to be if you had met me in May of 2020 Mm -hmm. and you went to my LinkedIn and said, hey, Dr. Richard, let's get a meeting. That was like a LinkedIn junkie. Like I would have met you at any time. In fact, the day before my stroke, or I should say the evening of, my stroke happened like 2 in the morning. I was on a Zoom call from somebody I met on LinkedIn who was on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. I was on the call at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. I started that day at 5 in the morning. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty typical for me. All right, so I created this little filter in terms of how I choose if somebody gets to go on my calendar. And you know, the beautiful thing about this is you can tweak this to your own kind of circumstances. Mm-hmm. But for me... It's it's three things. It's number one, does this person care about helping people more than they care about profit? Right. If that's not true, you don't get to my second wrong. Got it. Right? You don't get to number two. Okay. You don't get to number two. Number two, is there an opportunity to generate from this relationship the kind of revenue for both of us that mm-hmm. I want? And so then you figure out what that number is to you. And you would say, okay, like, I want every opportunity to make put X number of dollars. What's the minimum number of dollars that you are willing to expend time on, right? Because everything is time yeah. and money, like everything. Yeah. I, I teach people like, look, like if you don't like to cook, 
buy chopped onions, right? Spend more money on, on chopped onions because that's more time efficient than chopping onions, right? So I think of everything in terms of units of time and money. And, and then number three is, are they the chocolates in my peanut butter? Like, are we great by ourselves, but can Even we be better, better together, together, right? <laughs> so if there's a combination of those three things, somebody gets on my schedule. Yeah. That has reduced my appointments probably by 90%. But the quality of appointments I have are so much more meaningful because I don't, it's like dating, right? Like you don't have to wade through all the people at the bar to find the right person yeah. because you've already kind of pre-vetted them a little bit. The other thing I would say is be very intentional with how you handle tasks. We all can relate to and or know people who are very, very busy but never really seem to get anything done whatsoever. Right. Right. Because there is a there is a distinct difference between being busy and being productive. That's absolutely uh, true. And so for me, if I have a number of tasks, I I organize them hierarchically. I think I said that right. Um, with what I call my four D's, right? And and the D's are do, delegate, delay, or drop. So. If it's something that has to happen, if it's mission critical and only I can do it, mm-hmm. that's a do. That's on my calendar. Uh, if it's mission critical, but somebody on my team can do it, that's a delegate. delegate yeah. If it's important, but it doesn't have to be done today, delay. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that I'm not super excited about, and you know, and if I kick the can down the road 20 days, 40 days, and I'm still not going to be excited about it, then why even entertain it at all? Right. Just drop it. Like if it's if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. All right. <laughs> and so these are the things that I some of the things that I've implemented in my own personal life, so that I'm able to really have a more meaningful day to day. Now look, like eat healthy and meditate and all these things, they're they're all important. One of the last things that I'll say that's really critical is build time for yourself every day to have some fun. Even if it's just ten or fifteen minutes. The cumulative effect and there's a book I've I, I really enjoy called The Compound Effect by Darren Harding. And you know, he talks about things just small incremental changes, but I have found by even having sometimes as little as on a really busy day, 15 minutes a day and as much as, you know, an hour a day, you know, there are certain movies that my wife won't watch that I really like or shows that I like. Just something fun for me. I find that when I do those things Monday through Friday, I'm far more present as a parent on the weekend because then it's just all about the kids. Like I've gotten, I filled up my fun bucket. Right. I feel good. So I, I get to, you know, enjoy more and I don't feel like I'm missing out or I need to schedule like extra time with my friends to do things because I've done them. And then I have more time to, to be present as a parent. So those are a right. few tips. That's fantastic. And we'll wrap up shortly. But I know one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing that I have long since stopped doing is I used to tie my happiness as a person to different things that I might reach personally or professionally. So if I get to this point with this title or if I do this and X, Y, Z, right, um, that is going to make me happy. And then, of course, when you get to that point, you're still not happy. And so I was fortunate to have experiences in my own life that changed my perspective on that. And I think that's 
what a lot of people do is they tie their happiness to getting some place in their career or their personal life. And then when they arrive at that point, you know, there's always something else, right? So, but Dr. Richard, I really enjoyed talking to you today. How about you share with our listeners how they can find you and your podcast and follow the work that you're doing? I appreciate that, Dr. Crystal. It's all at the same place. It's at drrichardschuster.com. Everything that I'm doing is there. Uh, I challenge you to spell Dr. Richard Schuster any way you want because I bought every single domain of any single (laughs) possible combination of those words. So you'll find me and there you can, you know, click on the Daily Helping Podcast. I also have a quiz that I've made. This is free for people to take, but my mission is to help people be better than they were the day before. And I'm always honored and grateful to even play the smallest part in people's lives through that journey. So that quiz will take you through challenges of your life and and then that algorithm curates some custom content uh, mm-hmm. that you can get for free that that helps you be better and have fun and have a great life so uh, this was a blast dr crystal i'd love to hear from uh, you guys listening to this and uh, make it a great day because tomorrow is never guaranteed for sure that's right so drrichardschuster.com and we'll have contact information in the show notes of course Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Village Vision podcast on Word of Mom Radio. I hope you found inspiration and valuable insights from our conversation today. I know that I certainly did. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, leave a review, share all of the things, of course. But thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Village Vision podcast. Take care. And let's keep shining a light on the power of community collaboration, and care. She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is strong. She is true.